Hello and welcome to episode 344 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carasino. And we're coming to you in different locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. The, uh, the below 500, all of a sudden, Seattle Seahawks. We'll get to them <sighs> soon enough and a must-win game this Sunday. But let's start out with this week's beer from our friends at Bale Breaker Brewing Company in Moxie, Washington. Hello. It is the High Camp Winter IPA. Named for the ski lodge atop our local White Pass ski resort, this Opry ski sipper warms from the inside out with aromas of caramel, coffee, citrus, pine, and spice, taking Balebreaker's signature hop-forward style to the dark side with the addition of chocolate and rye malts. This balanced IPA is dry hopped with mosaic, Simcoe, and experimental hop, HBC 630 hops. This beer's got moxie. Uh, speechy, speaking of HBCs, did you see the Ed Reed hiring at Bethune? I did see that. Yeah, I, I was like, after Dion, schools are just going to keep going, right? As long as it's working. Yeah, I maybe. thought that was pretty cool. I was like, fuck it, why not? Right? Fame is a huge currency in college football. So, I mean, especially now with transfers being so frequent, I feel like it's all the more valuable. So, hopefully, that works out. All right, we start this week remembering former Sonic scout Mark Workentine, who died last week. Having worked with Jerry, Jerry Tarkanian at UNLV, Workentine joined the Sonics in 1991 before following Bob Witsit to Portland, later joined the Denver Nuggets, with whom he won Executive of the Year in 2008-09 as their Vice President of Basketball Operations. Workentine continued to make Lake Oswego his home, was a regular presence at Blazers games until dealing with some health issues in recent years, and... Uh, was was lucky enough to have many great conversations with Wark and uh, learned a lot from him, somebody who had a, a really fascinating college and NBA career. All right, our, our toast this week. Uh, congrats to the four Seahawks voted to the Pro Bowl. Quarterback Geno Smith, cornerback Tariq Woolen, safety Quandre Diggs, and kicker Jason Myers. Nick Ballore, Jordan Brooks, Michael Dixon, <clears throat> Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, and Yuchenna Nuosu were all voted alternates. There we go. They're pretty funny list. I, I don't think we're going to talk about this more later, but uh, seeing Gino on there, it was one of those things where it's like cumulatively for the season. It's kind of like maybe. Yeah, I think so. And then you were like, look at the other quarterbacks in the NFC. And it's it's a little bit like, OK, yeah. I mean, just the consistency at this point made him a Pro Bowl quarterback. Quandre Diggs I was a little bit surprised by, who I don't feel like has had that great of a season, but that might be one of the situations where we're paying a little bit more attention to Quandre Diggs than anybody else is. Yeah, I think at positions where there aren't a lot of statistics, there's a great deal of stickiness in Pro Bowl voting, I think. Like once you ascend to that Pro Bowl level, it's kind of hard to to fall out of it, I guess I would say. Certainly not uh, not a great defensive season for the Seahawks to have two defensive Pro Bowlers <laughs> And one and two alternates on defense. The special teams, on the other hand, number one in the NFL in DVOA and appropriately rewarded with Jason Myers pick and then Ballore and Dixon, both as alternates. Next up, congrats to new UW volleyball coach Leslie Gabriel, who was promoted after Keegan Cook left to take the same job at Minnesota recently. 
Gabriel, who played for the Huskies from 1995 through 1998, is Leslie Sopo, joined the coaching staff in 2001 and was part of UW's national championship in 2005, was recently named AVCA National Assistant Coach of the Year in 2020, so a well-deserved promotion for uh, a long-standing Husky who obviously uh, has has the family ties to UW with uh, Marcus and Zach also having played football here. Uh, staying on the UW theme, congrats to two UW men's soccer players drafted in the MLS Super Draft last Wednesday. Elijah Paul was taken seventh overall by Real Salt Lake. Nick Scardina went 40th to Charlotte FC. Uh, Huskies also expected to have a third player join an MLS team is Lucas Meek is expected to join Inter Miami after being drafted in the second round ahead of last season before returning to UW for his final year of eligibility. The Sounders in that MLS Super Draft traded their first round pick number nine overall to St. Louis City FC for $175,000 in general allocation money. (laughs) You made up at least two of those soccer teams. (laughs) I'm assuming you're going with Charlotte FC and St. Louis City FC. Inter Miami is pretty well pretty well established on this year podcast (laughs) and my inability to say it for a long period of time. (laughs) You were saying Inter Miami? I was trying to and it was not going well. It was there was a lot of Miami in there. It was tough. All right, lastly, congrats to Tom Chambers, Marcus Johnson, and Paul Westhead, the Naismith Memorial Hall of Team candidates for 2023 with Seattle ties. Chambers played for the Sonics. Westhead spent one season here as an assistant coach, while Johnson was Kevin Calabro's longtime partner on the Sonics broadcast. Johnson, a finalist in recent years, has the best chance of eventually making it, but this probably isn't the year for him with Pau Gasol, Dirk Nowitzki, Tony Parker, and Dwayne Wade all new to the Hall of Fame ballot. And all going to make it, right? I would think so. I mean, maybe they make one of those guys wait a year just to thin things out. Who do you even have? I mean, Tony Parker? Maybe? How? Yeah, I think Parker is probably the least first ballot Hall of Famer to me, although the finals MVP carries a lot of weight, surely. I think all those dudes are in. It's just the next year's class is a little little thinner. So St. Louis FC is going to be... Uh, that's, the, that... that's the newest MLS expansion okay. team. What yes. are they at? What is the number? I think that's 31, I want to say. Fort Wayne is next, right? Sacramento was supposed to be the next one, but then was unable to. I don't. I don't. I forget what this story was there exactly. Uh, but they are not currently joining MLS, and uh, the the talk is that Vegas will be the thirty second team. Are they stopping at thirty two? Probably not. If you get past thirty two, you have to have promotion and relegation. Is that the ultimate goal? There's a lot of talk about it. Uh, especially if there was the rumored merger with Liga MX, you figure that might be have to be a part of it. But uh, how know, likely teams... is this is this merger with Liga MX? Depends on the time frame. Okay. I think would be the way I would say it. You think I it's mean, going I, to happen though? In, in people that I read who know things about soccer seem to think it happens. Obviously, I have no particular in, unique insights <laughs> into the league MX MLS You have draft models, but you you don't. That'll come up later. You have draft models, but you don't have insight into league I, MX. I don't know. Wow. I guess they're only at twenty nine teams. I've, I'm off on that. So there's still a ways to go to get to thirty two. Is Liga MX just one table also though? Well, they have promotion and relegation. No, they do. Okay. Yeah. So things are about to get real weird. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see on that one. All right. Staying on the basketball theme, 
Uh, we should talk briefly about the Phoenix Suns selling last week to uh, Matt Ishbia, uh, Robert Sarver finding a buyer after he announced he was going to sell the team in the wake of uh, his suspension, uh, notably at a valuation that valued the team at $4 billion. Now, when Sarver first said he was going to sell the teams, I mentioned on the pod that this was sort of, sort of going to set the value for a Seattle franchise because Phoenix is quite similar in terms of market size, number of major league teams in the area, in the market. They also have they have a newly renovated arena, but they don't have a brand new arena like a Seattle team would. What is their so, arena called now? I want to say talking stick, but I think that was at least one name ago. <laughs> it was United Airways Arena, right? That was kind of like the classic name. Uh, it was it was American Airlines, Air, Air, uh, no, America West oh, was America when West. when the Sonics were playing there back in the nineties, and then it became U.S. Airways Center after America West's merger into U.S. Airways. Is that what I said? You said American Airlines. Oh, okay, I meant U.S. Airways. Uh, now the footprint center. The footprint set. Mm. So the other aspect of this is, look, the higher that valuation for a Seattle team gets, the more attractive, naturally, expansion starts to look to the 30 existing owners. Uh, you know, if you assume that you could charge more for an expansion franchise in Seattle and the same amount for a fran- expansion franchise in Vegas, suddenly you're talking at eight and a half, nine billion that the 30 teams are splitting. And you're looking at, you know, 300 million to in excess of 250 million maybe 300 million per team it becomes a lot more palatable to give up the tv rights to share the tv rights if you're bringing in that much money i mean do there probably won't be a point where these values of teams go down right but i think there's a lot of owners around the league who are looking at this i mean there could be a short-term point where they go down and they're looking at it and they're like, this team, they sold for $4 billion, right? That was kind of the rough grand total. That they was the valuation, for, yeah. $4 billion, the Suns did. And I'm sure there are a lot of owners around the league saying, that's great. I'm excited about what that means for the overall value of the team. But that number doesn't necessarily translate into any cash in pocket for the rest of those owners. No, right? unless, you're, unless you're selling uh, minority shares of your team. That's the Something other way that, Long-term may become more complicated as TV rights, as TV rights are getting parsed out more and more. Uh, and there's definitely going to be a change in what TV rights look like in the next two decades or whatever, right? Those things are going to get a little bit more complicated. And then, I mean, the in terms of the valuation jump, so Forbes in October had valued the Suns at $2.7 billion, 13th in the league. I, I think 13th is a reasonable ballpark for where the Suns belong. If you assume that all the other franchises are 50% approximately undervalued, like those franchise valuations get pretty incredible. Including I mean, the Blazers, who were $2.1 billion by Forbes, like they, they should get $3 billion easily as a valuation. I'm a if little and when skeptical the State sells. of, I mean, these valuations are one thing. I'm a little skeptical of why one team is worth more than another team. Like, I get it, teams are worth more in different places, but it's more about the extreme wealth in the united states right now and the imbalance of wealth in the united states right now and just getting in that's it it's about being one of the owners there's only 30 teams and being able to display that kind of wealth right so even if it's the pacers or the hornets or whatever right like 
it's not ultimately that different than the Suns because it's about that long-term wealth and growing that wealth and the long-term valuation more than it is about the short-term money. But if you can just look at this and say, well, this dude, bad person, bad owner, whatever, just made $4 billion over here and I didn't make jack shit. Where can I get a large chunk of cash right now? And if it's expansion, you're talking about $9 billion, $10 billion, right? And splitting that up among 30 teams. It's a way for them to in- inject a large amount of cash into each team at the very moment, which is not something without selling, which a lot of these owners don't want to sell, but they all would like to make more cash right now that they could do in this very instant. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the timeline is that a is fair assessment? Same. You didn't say anything. Is that a fair assessment of the situation? Yeah. I mean, I think this is, I mean, this goes back to the logic of why owners would have wanted to expand coming out of the pandemic to you know, make up, recoup some of that lost revenue, which they determined ultimately that the time was not right then. And the timeline continues to be the same, which is collective bargaining agreement, new TV deal, then we talk expansion. The collective bargaining agreement, the opt-out date was December 15th. They've pushed that back to February. So hopefully we'll hear more about those negotiations early in the month of January as they, uh, you know, that clock begins to tick. They can push it back again, but at some point, if they don't come to a deal, it becomes a little bit troubling. But uh, uh, hopefully, what they are get the that major sticking points on a new CBA? I mean, it seems like the the only real sticking point of note is the and is is uh, my colleague Woj has reported the NBA seeking to institute an upper spending limit and affect a hard cap above the salary cap. So we'll see how strongly teams actually feel about that teams feel about it or who are they who is that cba with isn't that with players yeah but how much teams actually want to push for that because for the players it's a it's a you want that then you're gonna have to lock us out basically give us something else i just feel like well no like we will never agree to that there will be no deal so i mean i feel like that doesn't affect like 99 percent of players but okay it's just the general principle of not wanting to have the hard cap a hard cap. Yes. Uh, I I don't see that the league right now, I still think the NBA is in a bit of tenuous ground when you look at it, right? We saw Christmas Day. The NBA games on Christmas Day did not have anywhere near the kind of impact that the NFL games had on Christmas Day, right? The, I'm sure, viewership, social impact, etc. Like the Christmas Day NFL games swamp the nba and that's one of the most important days of the year for the nba it's just the beginning of their seasons the end of nfl season etc but i do think that the nba is still at a complicated place as far as fandom goes and i don't think that anybody has any interest in any sort of lockout yeah and look the again four billion valuation the gravy train is is running right now you it's much easier to risk a lockout when you know, your things are going poorly financially, and it's not that it might actually benefit the owners to not pay salaries for a period of time. All right, let's get into the rundown, starting with the Mariners, who have seen, uh, you know, it's it's the Christmas shopping season is over, and so is the like starting caliber outfield shopping outfielder shopping season. Michael Conforto, they chose the, not uh, to race. <laughs> they did. They did uh, not transact. Again, I had plenty of festivus grievances about their offseason lack of spending, just not 
lack of spending on 13-year contracts. But Michael Conforto went to the Giants on a one-plus-one contract for $36 million, so he can opt out and get back into the market next year if he rebuilds his value with a healthy season. The Giants, despite how angry Giants fans are about them not getting Carlos Correa and Aaron Judge, they did manage to have pretty much exactly the offseason I would have wanted the Mariners to have, signing Mitch Hanniger and, and Conforto to short-term deals. But the Giants aren't competing. I mean, you look around the NL West, and they're obviously. I think the Dodgers have gotten worse this offseason, but the Dodgers are still one of the best teams in baseball. And the Padres probably got better. Like I don't, I don't know how. Let's just say, if we were a Giants podcast, we would be feeling the same way about the Giants offseason that we are about the Mariners offseason. The Giants are starting at probably a worse place than the Mariners are. They don't have Julio. Yes, right? they also don't have the twenty-year-old as their timeline. Uh, so, I, I would not say that the, the Giants have had a good offseason. Most people would. I don't think anyone would. <laughs> One person would. It's still a lot of money to pay Michael Conforto while he's revamping his value. The thing that it made me think, seeing all these large contracts, was... Julio's about to turn 22, by the way. I should should update my age timeline for Julio. That, that's coming on, uh, on, on Thursday. So, I, I, ahead of time, happy birthday to Julio. There we go. Uh, he looks like he's living a very nice life right now. Um, I'm sure he is. <laughs> but there is something about getting as much talent as you possibly can before they get to free agency. And like, if the Mariners want to go out and trade for Brian Reynolds, I think people have undervalued a little bit having players rights pre-free agency. Because you're talking about if Michael Conforto is making $18 million a year on a short-term deal or something like that, or so many of these free agents are making you know, 18, $20 million a year, like getting those players for those years beforehand is hugely important. And I think it is worth trading prospects for, even though those prospects could eventually turn into players that are also are that if you know, you have major league caliber hitting somebody like Brian Reynolds and the Mariners can go out and trade for him. And it requires pretty high end talent. It is still worth it because the amount of money he's going to be paid on the open market is an absurd amount of money. I mean, and I think that money, pro- that money translates is, on the other side to prospects. Those pro- you have to say to yourself, are these prospects worth four hundred sure. million dollars or whatever? It's all kind of a net value question, but I think the problem is that as the free agency market overheats, perhaps as uh, detractors of the Mets might say, then that gets reflected in the trade market as well because other teams are also more willing to trade their prospects to get Brian Reynolds and get those pre-free agency years. Like it seems like. Every day, Brian Reynolds is tre- trending on Twitter just because Yankees fans are wishfully tweeting about their team trading for him. So it's not just the Mariners. There's going to be a lot of teams in that Brian Reynolds trade market. There's no there's no way. But you think they're just going to snake show easily. Again, <laughs> it's gonna be I the first that, player to get a billion dollar contract. And you think the I, Mariners are going to easily get Shohei. I think that they are un- more uniquely interested in Shohei than they are in Brian Reynolds or certainly in Carlos Correa. Okay. Even in Aaron Judge. There's there's no way to to do it on the cheap unless you can have an amazing farm system and constantly recalibrate your talent. But enough about the Astros. All right, Kraken. The Kraken curse continues, and that's playing against Vancouver. Really thought this might be the one last Thursday night in Vancouver. They were leading 5-3 in the third period, but then gave up two goals late to... Uh, Force overtime, uh, team scoreless in OT, and they lost a shootout 2-1 to the Canucks, taking a point, but remaining winless in six games 
all time, six derby matches all time against Vancouver. Uh, Kraken have been off since then for the holidays. They're back home Wednesday night to begin a three-game homestand against Calgary, Edmonton, and New York. Uh, quick Sounders note, uh, farewell to Jimmy Madronda, who signed with the Columbus crew after two-plus seasons in Seattle. Madronda started 15 games in 2021, primarily as a left wing back, but lost his starting job as part of the shift back to a 4-2-3-1 formation this most recent season, putting moving Nuhu from center back to left back and made just eight starts in 2022. So didn't figure prominently in the Sounders' plans going forward. Let's skip ahead to UW basketball. Uh, who also, the, also took the week off for Christmas. Also did that, yes. <laughs> and now get ready to begin Pac-12 play in earnest, having already beaten Wazoo with the Mountain Schools this weekend, uh, hosting wow. them. Friday, it's Colorado, who comes in 10-3, and three, led by UW transfer Quay Miller, who's averaging 14.2 points and 7.6 rebounds in her second season in Boulder. Colorado is uh, two of their three losses have come to ranked foes, and they're coming off an impressive 23-point win at Marquette, which was just outside the twenty top 25 before that game. The Utah comes in ranked number 11, uh, one of six remaining undefeated teams in the top 25 at 12-0, having crushed Colorado by 27 in their Pac-12 opener and beat a ranked Oklahoma team by 46 points. Otherwise, haven't been tested much in the non-conference. Still a very impressive start. They rank third, second in the country in offensive rating per hoopstats.com, third in net margin with an approach that's focused on generating three-point attempts and shots at the rim and doing so very successfully this season. That should be everybody's focus. It should be, but yet, <laughs> not, it isn't always. And, and teams Whose focus is a thing other than that? <laughs> the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> Uh, even the teams that are focused on it don't always do it as well as Utah is right now. All right, Utah men's basketball. That's who I was saying took the, took the week off for Christmas. What I oh, meant is, yeah. Uh, well, it would have been better for them had they chosen to uh, they, take the week I, off. I feel like that that game was just like I forgot it was happening until it was over. Never schedule an important game right before Christmas. Yeah, it was a tough time. It was a very like a lot of Auburn fans in the crowd. <laughs> really? Like did you go? I did not go, but that's that's what what they mentioned on TV and and showed a number of Auburn fans. It was like, was it the night before the ice storm? Yes. Okay. So it, it wasn't was, impassable, but it was very it was very sinister out. <laughs> sinister, I suppose. It wasn't pleasant. I was happy to sit at home and, and watch that uh, and, and be able to flip over to NBA games in the second <laughs> I was half. Say, were you happy to watch it? Right. I just, uh, look, I just looked at the score after and I was like, oh shit, that was happening. Well, glad I missed it. After you, after you give the Huskies better than a 50% chance of winning this one, right? I don't know what the hell happened. I literally don't know. I just saw the score and I was like, I'm not thinking about that team for a week. Merry Christmas, motherfuckers. Well, they couldn't score in the first half when they shot 7 of 33 from the field and then couldn't get stops after halftime as Auburn put up 53 second half points on 21 of 29 shooting in a dominant performance. Huskies got within eight at the break. It felt like there was there was an opportunity still to make this a competitive game, but then a 15 to 2 Auburn run in the early second half 
turned it into a route. And I mean, there definitely were moments where Auburn doesn't have a lot of NBA prospects because the the one guy they they did have coming into the season, Chance Westry, uh, mentioned last week he struggled from three. He basically only played after the game got out of hand in this one. But they've just got like they've got a lot of high major college basketball players with experience. Many of them going deep in you know playing multiple games in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. And UW is relying heavily on two freshman guards against that. Who is Auburn's coach? Bruce Pearl. It's still Bruce Pearl. Yeah. Okay. So. That, they're uh, just out, outclassed in literally every way. Like, that's kind of it. Yep. Pretty much, was that was pretty evident. They're just a better program. Period. Better players, it's a better program. There's uh, really not that much else to say about the game, is there? Yeah, except that Huskies uh, could play some better teams than Auburn in the Pac-12 at the top of the conference, including this weekend. Great. One quick update from the broadcast. PJ Carlissimo mentioned there that Frank Kipnong had successful surgery to repair the ACL tear that ended his season. So uh, hopefully he'll be able to return in time for the start of 2022-23 season. So the Huskies, after their holiday break, Welcome in the uh, welcome in the LA schools this week. By the way, UW has to be on the the women are on the road. I'm pretty sure men are at home. On Friday, that's USC. On Friday night, uh, they started the season on a shaky note with a home loss to Andy Enfield's former team, Florida Gulf Coast, but have since gone ten and two with the lone losses in the battle for Atlantis to top ten Tennessee and a ranked Wisconsin team. Got an easy start to conference play with wins over Cal and Oregon State, but then finished non-conference play on a high note with a home win over Auburn and a neutral site victory over Colorado State. Stylistically kind of similar to Auburn, it's a dominant interior defense led by center Joshua Morgan, who's top 10 in block rate. A below average shooting team with just two players, Boogie Ellis and fifth year senior Drew Peterson, averaging even one three-pointer per game. Uh, they come in with uh, their best draft prospect is freshman forward Trey White, who's uh, starting alongside Peterson and, and kind of a well-rounded freshman. Uh, another team that, you know, maybe their lack of shooting could be exposed against the zone, but only if UW can manage to score enough points to take advantage of it. And UW, a team that goes to the hoop weirdly a lot, right? And yes. r- relies well, on that they don't. They also are poor outside, poor they can't outside shoot. shooting team. Yeah. So the interior defense can be a problem. It just USC is way better. I mean, it wouldn't be shocking if they won this game. This is like, an over two weekend. Come on. It, that seems like the most likely outcome. I mean, Ken Palm has it as basically a toss up against USC, though. Really? Yep. Home court advantage is pretty powerful in college basketball. Not here. Everywhere else. <laughs> Seattle U, maybe. <laughs> I've never noticed it being a valuable thing for the Huskies. It was a, a little bit of a rough uh, time in Hawaii for Seattle U. They in, in Washington State were both playing in the Diamond Head Classic last week, and Seattle U lost their first two before beating George Washington in the finale. Wazoo won their opener, but then lost to host Hawaii in the semifinals. Is there any chance that the season goes majorly sideways for the Huskies? There's a chance, but that's not how their seasons typically go. You think they're going to be rough, like, whatever, 7-11 and 11 in conference or something? Well, they play 20 games now, but 8-12 uh, okay. and 12 is Ken Palm's projection for them, and that sounds about right. 
Especially because the bottom of the Pac-12, is, although one of those teams is, of course, Oregon State, who they've already lost to on the road. But Oregon State and Cal are pretty pretty horrendous, although the rest of the conference, besides UW, well, UW is precisely number 100. 100. Everyone else is 77 or higher in the Ken Palm rankings. Including the number four team in the Ken Palm rankings, the UCLA Bruins, uh, who are ranked number 11 in the AP poll, number eight in the coaches poll. They suffered back-to-back early losses in Las Vegas to Illinois and a ranked Baylor team, but have won their last eight games, including a, they got the opposite. If USC somehow got Cal and Oregon State, UCLA got Stanford and Oregon, which is the much tougher of those two matchups. Uh, won both of those. A recent blowout at Maryland by 27 points and then a 10-point win over Kentucky in the CBS Sports Classic in New York. UCLA number four in adjusted offensive efficiency, number 11 on defense, led by veteran forward Jaime Hawkwes, who's seventh in the Ken Palm Player of the Year rankings. Tiger Campbell is the other returning starter from UCLA for the from the uh, 2001 or remaining starter from the 2001 Final Four team, but it's an experienced team. They start four upperclassmen alongside freshman Amari Bailey as their fifth starter. UCLA also doesn't shoot many threes, but when they do, they make them at a 37% clip. So they're pretty much good at everything. Cool. Great. Ken Plum gives the Huskies a 14% chance of victory because of that home court advantage and anything can happen in a single game. Usually it doesn't get to the free throw line a lot. I guess that is the one thing they are weak at. There we go. So, um, I mean, if you looked at the Ken Palm values of each of these games, you would say that they have a fairly okay chance of winning one. Yeah. A split is a little more likely than getting swept. According to Ken Palm, a sweep, very unlikely. Realistically to you though, what is the most likely outcome here? Oh, and two. Yeah. I, it's gonna be a long weekend here i will say usc i mean usc is not that that much rated that much worse than colorado is rated is rated worse i should say than colorado who the huskies already beat at home so they can do it what day are those games friday sunday friday sunday so the the ucla game is on new year's day opposite the seahawks just genius level stuff (laughs) uh that is a or no i guess it is not opposite the seahawks it's a 4 p.m start so it's a it might overlap at the beginning, but uh, Friday, a rare Friday night game for the Husk- Huskies against USC on, on December 30th. You just always hear about that New Year's Day Pac-12 college basketball. <laughs> well, there's not bowl games they're going against, I guess. So that's something. That is something. Well, speaking of bowl games, Hello. let's talk about the Alamo Bowl, which is coming Finally. up on Thursday. God, we've been talking fucking... Husky basketball for hours. Let's talk about something interesting. As the Huskies take on number 20 in the college football playoff, number 21 in the AP and coaches pool, Texas and Steve Sarkeesian. And that is a, that is a light number 20 for Texas. When you look at FPI, this is a very, very good football team. We'll get into it more later, but this is a battle of heavyweights. This could easily be, it's probably better than some of the college football playoff games or not playoff games. Some of the new Year's six games new that Year's are six happening. Games. Yeah, I think that's plausibly true. This could have uh, first easily little... been statistically a New Year's Six matchup. And it yeah. pits UW versus Steve Sarkeesian. You could just you could kind of feel you could feel the history, not necessarily of these two teams playing each other, but Steve Sarkeesian playing in an Alamo Bowl of days of yore. 
with two high-powered offenses going against each other. You could feel it. You could feel it coming this Thursday night. The storylines are plentiful going into this. Let's talk about a little UW news before that. Uh, first off, multiple reports Tuesday that UW offensive coordinator Ryan Grubb received a second raise. Hello. In the past two weeks, bumping his pay to over $2 million after a report from the Houston, Con- or maybe two $2 million after a report from the Houston Conical last weekend that he was on Jimbo Fisher's wish list for the same position at Texas A&M. Uh-huh. So. I mean, you put, you put the, you did not put this in toast intentionally because of what I would say about it. But at the same time, Understandably said last time. If <laughs> if you're going to get paid an absurd amount of money to be an offensive coordinator uh, in college football, you might as well be good. And that's what Ryan Grubb has earned. Like I, I think part of he's he's so closely linked. He earned he earned as much as any college football coach can earn the pay that they are that they are making, which none of them can or should, but as much as they can. He's also so closely linked with Kalen DeBoer and having those two together. That is why we go into this next season with the confidence that we have. But the reality is you can pay him as much as you want as offensive coordinator right now. And when those jobs stop being offensive coordinator at Texas A&M, Ryan Grubb is going to take a head coaching job. It is only a matter of time. Like you can pay him now, but we need to have the Ken Dorsey in the wings. Right. And I think that's what the, that's what, Kalen DeBoer, and I know he's thinking about it. That's a reality of the situation is that he has to be thinking about who's next after Ryan Grubb because this is a one or two year more thing if this offense keeps moving like it did this last year. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if part of you know the thinking from Ryan Grubb to a degree is, and he said he has that there have been conversations about head coaching jobs as well out there is, uh, you know, one more year with Michael Penix Jr. With, you know, the full complement of offensive weapons with pretty much everyone coming up back on offense, except, well, we still haven't heard about Roma Dunze. Jalen McMillan announced last week that he is coming back. Uh, But, you know, pretty much everyone but Wayne Talapapa and Jackson Kirkland uh, in, you know, put together another season like this and then maybe have that platform to go get an even bigger head coaching job. I, I think there's also two things that he's thinking. I think he's aware that Kalen DeVore may not be at the University of Washington for all of eternity. And if somebody were to replace Kalen DeVore as UW head coach, it'd be very quick for that to happen. But if somebody were to replace Kalen DeVore as UW head coach, Ryan Grubb would be first in line as long as he's there. So there's a couple, there's a few different things in the works. I think he obviously used the interest from Jimbo Fisher to get paid, which is do your thing as long as somebody's willing to pay it. The state of Texas can't have an effective power grid, but has the money to pay an offensive coordinator at Texas A&M. It just won't be killing Ryan Grubb. Uh, it will be interesting to see if they view somebody else on staff as kind of that next in line as an offensive coordinator. I mean, Jamarcus Shepard is passing game coordinator at this point would probably be the most logical, you know, elevate elevation for that. I mean, I guess actually I, I should point out Nick Sheridan, the tight ends coach was the offensive coordinator at Indiana after Kalen DeBoer left there, although it did not go super ideally necessarily. But he and Michael Penix Jr. clearly have a great relationship. Uh, Penix, in some of the interviews that he's done in the past week, I read the one with uh, Christian Capel on The Athletic, cited Sheridan as a big part of the reason that he went to Indiana in the first place, and then therefore, you know, obviously along with DeBoer, came to UW. Uh, a couple transfer newcomers for the Huskies 
in the past week. Arizona State running back Daniel Ngata, who has three years to play two at UW. He's been a backup running back for the Sun Devils each of the past two seasons, averaging 5.1 yards per carry, recording six TDs in his three years in Tempe. Had four carries for 39 yards and a touchdown in their win against UW. So this is someone we know. I was going to say, I recognize that name. Okay. On a Saturday afternoon in Tempe. (laughs) But this this is the big one. Then maybe these next two, one of them not being a transfer. Uh, Oklahoma State cornerback Jabbar Muhammad, who started last season as a third-year sophomore after making his first career start in the 2022 Fiesta Bowl, will have two seasons of eligibility at UW, coming off an honorable mention All-Big 12 pick. Also played some safety last season due to injuries, but uh, obviously given UW's needs, he's going to settle in at cornerback. Oh, this is massive. I mean... This was like a huge free agent signing over the offseason or whatever, right? Massive trade. This one is going to have a massive impact on this defense next season. I mean, there was the single biggest need for the Huskies was at the cornerback position. And to get someone with, you know, they they already have brought in a JC transfer to get someone with experience at a power five level playing, you know, at an above average level in your conference. Like that's that's so heavy passing conference also like, right. He's just, he's seen it. He will instantly <laughs> step in and be UW's number one corner. Uh, Jamar Muhammad has seen some shit in terms of opponent passing games, including Texas. And then also on signing day, the Huskies got a letter of intent from Rainier Beach cornerback Caleb <gasps> Presley, a consensus four star recruit who was previously committed to Oregon. But everyone had kind of sensed since he showed up on the sidelines during the season at UW, <laughs> there was a pretty good chance he might be coming here. Let's freaking go. It's good to know we managed to ruin Oregon signing day. Nothing went well for them. Everything went poorly. Look, you know, the day after didn't look so great. Uh, I, I, I have, I don't think that anybody should get that excited about incoming high school players. I think we talked about this last week, right? We've talked about this since we've done a podcast. Recruiting as a whole is very important. Individual recruits, there's a there's a lot of randomness in that difficulty projecting that transition from the high school level to college. I, I Caleb Presley is probably not like a Shaq Thompson level recruit or something like that, right? Even maybe Buda Baker. But when you saw Caleb Presley be like shouts to Buda Baker as somebody who flipped his recruitment from Oregon <laughs> to UW, you're just like, let's fucking go. Seems to have right worked now. out for Buda. And I, and I don't, there will be opportunities for Caleb Presley immediately in the secondary. So for UW to have brought in players who at the very least will have the ability to shore up that secondary, which was easily the weakest aspect of, of the defense and the team in general this season, like it's a considering that they're returning almost the same offense. I understand there's a lot of very good teams around the Pac-12. feels like the Pac-12, maybe now more than ever, is looking the best it's looked in a couple of decades overall, but <laughs> strange time for it i mean just i i'm counting usc and ucla yes yeah, the last year of now. the pac-12 looks like it's gonna be uh an incredible incredible offensive battle i think there's a good chance that the pac-12 puts somebody into the college football playoff next year or maybe they just beat up on each other like they always the, do the, I mean, that's pac-12 like, history right yeah. but there will be a lot of very very good teams in the pac-12 this isn't like well they won the pac-12 but they're actually like the 10th best team in the country or, you know, Oregon won the Pac-12, but they, I mean, I guess I could, well, we'll say this about UW last year. They they lost to Arizona at home. 
Yeah. Which feels like it happened for so many years. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't know that we should necessarily expect Caleb Presley to come in and start right away. You know, when the Huskies had it rolling in the secondary under Jimmy Lake, like one of the awesome things they were able to do is bring even highly rated recruits, guys who are first round picks in the NFL, Kyler Gordon, Trent McDuffie, didn't play necessarily right away because they had other first round picks at those positions. But would I be shocked if Caleb Presley and Jabari Muhammad are the two starting outside corners on on week one? No, not at all. It was also a slightly different era that Jimmy Lake was coaching under. Like, I think those players might have stuck around knowing that an opportunity was coming after. But if you redo it all again, who knows? Trent McDuffie might be on UCLA or whatever. I mean, it's easier to be patient if you know that what's at the end of the rainbow is, again, being a first-round pick at the NFL or at least a top-two-round pick. Uh, Huskies did have one player, tight end Cade Jumper, announced he will begin the transfer process. Probably not terribly surprising after they added, I believe that was Josh Cuevas at that position last week. So certainly some more transfers to come after the Alamo Bowl just from a a scholarship standpoint. Uh, Huskies, I believe, have 91 scholarships committed at this point. It's a wild time. This is like the college football offseason. We all of a sudden have transact in college football. It's, but it's weird because it happens before the bowl games. It's just so, instant. Did you see Oklahoma State like was, a... I was watching them earlier play against Wisconsin. Jamar Muhammad's not there. He's, he's yeah. already headed to UW. Peace, bitches. Did you see that there's like a like Heisman caliber quarterback who transferred to Notre Dame today? I did not see that news. It's just like, like you can just do that. Like you can just go out the, and pick up a star quarterback. May? No. That's not his name also. Luke. It's not a, oh, sorry. Like, Luke May is his brother, who is uh, uh, S- Sam Hartman from Wake Forest. He, I don't think he's chosen Notre Dame, has he necessarily? The strong favorite, according to my colleagues at ESPN. With Notre Dame quarterback Drew Pine headed to Arizona State. Arizona State, I feel like a, I, I think Arizona State might be a monster next season. There's a chance of it. Things are happening at Arizona State. It's just kind of wild, though, right? Like... It just, but also, it, like, teams can change much more quickly if you can, like, USC this year is the obvious example of that. No, I think it's fun. I, again, I mean, I said this last week. It puts the it's, pressure it's on. It's fun if you're one of the teams that gets the transfers. I mean, wait, Wazoo, maybe not. But, it's not been great from the offseason for Washington State. But, like, Arizona points. State went out and got a bunch of transfers this offseason, right? I mean, Arizona State should always be able to recruit while they're in Tempe. I guess so. But a counterpoint. They're in Tempe. From what perspective? Like college oh, football is never going to be the biggest deal there? From it being Tempe, Arizona that we're talking about? I think I think a lot of football players like to play in Tempe. I mean, I guess if people like to be in Eugene, Oregon, I guess they like to be anywhere. You know, Tempe is like right next to Phoenix. You know that, right? I'm highly aware. <laughs> okay. Just wanted to be clear there. All right, let's get to the Alamo Bowl. So three Texas players have opted out of the Alamo Bowl ahead of entering the NFL draft, including both star running back Bijan Robinson and his backup, Rashawn Johnson, as well as linebacker DeMarvion Overshawn. That has had some impact on the spread. Longhorns opened is three four and a half point favorites in this one. They got that got as high as Longhorns minus six, 
It's now minus 3.5 at entering this game, despite the fact that the Huskies are on, you know, nominally the higher ranked of these two teams. But the the spread knows. Yes. I mean, that started at, number one. This is basically a home game. It started out, it started out too high. It is basically a home game. The spread knows. Look, the pollster, if the bookmakers in Vegas are more aware of FPI. Oh, no, it's down that, to minus three. Apparently, I think that is about about a right spread, though. I think that makes a lot of sense. Bookmakers in Vegas are more aware of FPI and team quality than pollsters are. And that's not even necessarily what the polls do in a hypothetical world. It's what the polls do. They're not necessarily ranking the best teams, though. The polls are ranking what has happened. In FPI, Texas is number six in the country, a little bit weaker in FPI efficiency, which is kind of surprising because I don't know how how highly they were rated coming into the season. They're ninth in FPI efficiency, where the Huskies rank 18th. But so that's that's the basis of a lot of this. No matter how you look at it, they are a top 10 team. I mean, honestly, I'm a little bit surprised that running backs have moved the needle that much, partially just because I also think that the bookmakers in Vegas know that running backs do not matter. At the college level, they matter to some degree. I'm I'm going to push back to you on you. On that particular point, the running backs I, I, don't matter philosophy is an NFL philosophy. Oh, let's see the Huskies stop the run with whoever they roll out there at running back. Fair. And I think running backs are probably still overrated at the college level. But I do think there are greater talent differences that exist at that level. The, the I just think the line settled it where it was going to settle anyway. It started out way too, way too much favoring. No, but I'm telling you, it went to minus six. It was minus four and a half to start with. And then it people bet on Texas before Bijan Robinson's announcement. Ah, uh-huh. and, and then it came back, down it came to, back to UW to minus three. I still think over time it was moving toward UW anyway. So it will certainly be a different look for the Texas offense, given that uh, Robinson and his backup Johnson had nearly 2,600 combined yards for a scrimmage, accounting for about half the Longhorns total. So they went eight and four this season, three of the four losses to teams ranked in the top 11 at the time, those being Alabama, Oklahoma State, and TCU. With their departures, no active running back on the roster had more than 24 carries this season, with Jonathan Brooks leading the way. Uh, he did score four touchdowns and averaged 7.5 yards on his 24 carries, including a 70-yard touchdown in the fourth quarter of a lopsided win over Kansas. So he'll likely lead the running back committee on Thursday. Uh, Texas still has Quinn Ewers at quarterback who started all nine games. He played in his first season in Austin, winning the job from day one. Ranked just six in the Big 12 in QBR, completed 57% of his passes for 7.3 yards per attempt. Ewers was definitely at his best when Texas could rely on the run game and limit his attempts, most notably a 12 of 16 for 194-yard performance in the regular season finale, a win over Baylor. Texas had a balanced receiving game, three players between 577 and 676 yards receiving. Xavier Worthy was the top deep threat with nine touchdowns. Robinson was a big factor out of the backfield as well as his carries. Uh, Is was Keelan Robinson, who is no relation. They're now their top receiving back. He had 14 catches for 179 yards and three touchdowns. So uh, look for him on third downs and in passing situations. The Texas defense ranked 23rd in FBI efficiency under the coordination of former Husky defensive coordinator Pete Kwiatkowski with former Husky coach Jeff Choate is co-defensive coordinator, wow. making this the second best opposing defense the Huskies have faced after Oregon State, although Washington State did rank higher prior to the Apple Cup. Uh, 
And in some ways, when you consider that, you know, how, how tightly Pete Kwiatkowski's career was tied to Chris Peterson, this is the closest we're going to get for the moment to the Kalen DeBoer offense against the Chris <laughs> Peterson defense, which is kind of a fascinating thing to say. Wow. And it like statistically looks like those Husky defenses, uh, which, you know, we always looked at this statistically over the years. The opponents completed a high percentage of their pass attempts against the Huskies. And this year, Texas, second highest opponent completion percentage in the Big 12 at 63.5%. But for just 10.1 yards per 10.1 yards per completion, and the result was the second lowest yards per attempt in the Big 12. So they were ninth in completion percentage, second in yards per attempt. Wow. I had no idea that Pete Kwiatkowski was there, DC. Where is he forgot been? about this? Where has he been in the interim? He just went from UW to, I mean, he was going to stay under Jimmy Lake, and then Sark got the Texas job and hired him in 2020. And so they never overlapped with each other. This was just... Him and Kylian DeBoer? Him and Sark. No, yeah, that was just a coincidence. That's just... Wow, that is incredible. Yeah. I, I do think, here's the thing. Like Sark was know, keeping an eye on you, Dub. I, I kind of love it. Uh, yeah, you I didn't think, even know that this part of the reunion was happening. Pete Kwiatkowski is probably the o- most underrated member of that Husky coaching staff at the oh, time. Oh, without question. I don't think yeah. he was ever necessarily seriously considered for head coaching jobs. But what you're talking about is somebody who... Jimmy Lake got all the attention. Jimmy Lake was the one who they couldn't let go of, right? It was all about the secondary under Jimmy Lake. But ultimately, like, Pete Kukowski came in as the defensive coordinator initially. That was Pete Kukowski's defense more than it was Jimmy Lake's defense. We saw it hold up. We've seen Pete Kukowski do it in a couple of different places. We've not seen Jimmy Lake do it in a couple of different places. I mean, the Europe defense wasn't terrible in 2021. It was mostly just how horrendous the offense was. But yes, uh, and the Texas defense, I don't think was very good before this season. I think this is kind of the first year that they've gotten it locked in on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, they were 59th in defensive efficiency on FBI last year. Huskies were 30th. Takes time. Uh, But knowing that defense that Pete Kwiatkowski is running, he's just saying, same as the air raid, whatever, complete passes. You got a long way to go when you're doing that and you're going to make a mistake in the interim. I think it's going to be really fun to watch because the closest we've seen to that against the UW defense was remarkably another former UW defensive coordinator, Justin Wilcox in the Cal game, where they really did a great job of taking away UW's explosive plays, especially in the first half. But eventually UW was able to kind of grind things out. Now, they're probably going to need more points to win this game than they were against the Cal offense. But it'll be it'll be really interesting, especially... You know, the strength of the Kalen DeBoer-Ryan Grubb offenses has been the ability to create mismatches with motion at the line. And like there's so many times, like you read so many stories where the players are talking about, well, we knew as soon as the play was called or as soon as we saw what the defense was in, we knew this was going to be a touchdown. And can they make that happen against this Texas defense is kind of fascinating to watch. I I don't think that's what it's going to be about in this game. I think it's going to be about a couple of those drives that we've seen from Michael Penix that we've talked about, right? It wasn't the 60-yard touchdowns or whatever they got against Wazoo. It was the drives at the end of the game against Arizona State. 
It was the sustained drives when Michael Penix has had to fight back against defenses that have played them fairly well. And they've just, he's made the pass, made the pass, made the pass. If there's anybody who I would count on being able to play against a defense like this, it is Michael Penix Jr. Probably more so than almost anybody in the Big 12, right? Yeah, I guess who was the best quarterback in the Big 12 this year by QBR? You've oh, well, then Jalen Daniels, who... Who did nothing against this Texas defense? Was Jalen Daniels actually good though? I mean, he was number one in the country in QBR now, as we've talked about. That overvalues rushing performance. But uh, if you if you look at his season, man, it really kind of fell apart towards the end of it. I guess he was coming off of an injury when he played against Texas, but uh, he was seventeen of twenty six for two hundred and thirty yards against them. That's not terrible. <clears throat> So you've kind of talked me into this being a defensive battle, though. What is the over under on this game? What is the over under on this game? Because I went into this saying to myself, this is going to be each team. The 2011 Alamo Bowl uh, Redux. It's it sounds like it's not going to be that. I mean, I I don't know if I quite thought that, but we know that UW's defense, if you push them, they they could get to that point. They could give up 50 (laughs) points. But uh, the, the the total on this one is 67 and a half. I'm taking the under. I Texas, think this, let's see, they scored the 20th most points per game, but allowed the 28th fewest. So their their average combined score uh, was a 57 this season. I just, this is just based upon your description it's sounding to me like this is going to be a slightly more defensive game than we're anticipating. Washington's and, average score this season was a 67. So they're, they're saying this is more of a Washington game than a Texas game. I'll take it. But because that means that the UW offense is going to be humming. I still think, I think in the end, UW is going to score points. We've talked about this all season long and it has, I have not been proven wrong in a single week. I have not been proven wrong. And it comes down to, I think there are certain types of quarterbacks who have really hurt UW. And I'm not sure that Quinn Ewers is that quarterback. And I'm not sure that the run game, that they're going to be rely, they're going to be able to rely on the run game like they would like to. Yeah. I don't think they're going to be able to run the ball for 200 yards against UW. It's going to, ha- it's going to come down to Quinn Ewers making plays. He's going to have to pass the fucking ball. I see two possible directions that this game could go. If Texas is able to run the ball successfully and hold the Huskies to field goals early on and take a lead in this game, then I think they can kind of like grind this out because one thing we can say about that UW offense and how dependent it is on motion is when they've trailed, that offense does not move quickly. It doesn't they, move quickly, they only but have they one move efficiently. They yeah, move efficiently. You're okay doing letting them move efficiently if you're up, you know, ten to fourteen points. And so I think if Texas takes a lead early, then the Huskies are in trouble. But if UW takes the lead early and the Texas has to get one dimensional, then I think there is a possibility where Ewers could get exposed a little bit. I would have thought that Quinn Ewers, his stats were a little bit better this year. I, See, I expected it too. Percentage. I mean, I literally only watched Quinn Ewers against Alabama when he got injured. And I was like, that dude's a <laughs> fucking baller. So uh, when does, oh my God. Arch Manning? Arch Manning. When does Arch Manning get to Austin? 
uh, presumably for spring practice. I, I have not it's looked this that year. up specifically. He's coming. Yes, he, he just signed there, yes. Well, say good say good night to Quinn Ewers. <laughs> it was one year in Austin. He, it is Arch Manning's job. In the way that players are transferring, you do not not start Arch Manning. It seems likely. That Tennessee, Ole Miss will happily be there to welcome Arch Manning if he would like to transfer. If Austin UW would not. also be there if, if Arch Manning would like to transfer. Sure. Yes. It's not, that's not going to happen, but yes, would happily accept it. We have our sights uh, in two years on another child of, well, not a child of, but you're saying Arch, Arch Manning isn't the child of an ex-NFL quarterback. But we have our sights. Sam Heward gets yes, the that's job? Sam Heward's okay. job in two years. We'll, it's we'll interesting see. we haven't heard about the Dylan Morris transfer news because it's coming. But, uh, Dylan Morris told uh, reporters last week that he does not plan to transfer at this point. That's bonkers, dog. You should. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan Morris should do whatever he thinks is best for him. He would just be so transfer to Fresno State, Dylan Morris. You will be a monster at Fresno State. Fresno State may already have a transfer quarterback. I, I'm not monitoring the Fresno State roster news at this point. If Dylan Morris is on Fresno State next year, he's just as good as Jay Kaner is this year. I don't know if I would go that far. He's good. Dylan Morris is a good quarterback. Jay Kaner, Jay Kaner is special. Dylan Morris can be just as good as Jay Kaner is. He, just, he literally was playing quarterback under Jimmy Lake and still yeah. looked good sometimes. He, he, the John Donovan era left a lot to be desired. <laughs> John Donovan. We'll talk about Nathaniel Hackett in a second. John Donovan was the Nathaniel Hackett hire of UW. Where, and they both coached for the Jags too, right? I believe that is a commonality. Wow. For them. I don't know if they overlapped. <laughs> maybe, they taught each other a no, little something. No, they could have. <laughs> well, then maybe they did. When was John Donovan there? By the way, he's currently a senior analyst for the Packers. Their season's going well. John <laughs> Donovan was there 2016 through 19. Their season's going <laughs> I mean, actually, they're going to probably probably knock the Seahawks out of the playoffs oh, by winning boy. the last two. People are uh, way too confident about the Packers at this point. Yes, they overlapped for three seasons. Well, they're wow. playing the Vikings this week, so you can see why they're confident about them. John Donovan and Nate Hackett taught each other everything each of them knows. <laughs> <laughs> we never even see John, saw John Donovan's clock management. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, Lord. Uh, anyway, this will be the last start of Quinn Ewer's career at uh, Texas. So that's nice. And I think it's going to be a slightly more defensive battle. Uh, I agree with you, I guess, from what you're talking about. But I still think the Huskies can score efficiently in those situations. Like, I'm, I'm the not question is whether Penix can kind of stay patient and not make some of the mistakes we've seen in those situations, Arizona State, notably in UCLA. First of all, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since those mistakes. It has. It has not been as long since the interception in the end zone against Oregon, but again, made, more than made up for that. More than made up for so that. So brutal. <laughs> whatever i completely forgot that even happened who cares <laughs> exactly uh percentage chances of victory alamo bowl i'm gonna say 45 percent. i'm gonna say it is a 50 50 game it should be fun i mean the one i'm curious the the one thing i really like from uw standpoint for uw which 
didn't play in a bowl game in 2020 because of COVID. Didn't play in a bowl game in 2021 because they didn't qualify. This is a big fucking deal. Like the Alamo Bowl isn't the New Year's Six, but it's still like it's a big time game. It's in on prime in prime time. Uh, you know, I between Christmas that. and New Year's. Look, when you're for, in the Pac-12 and you're only on Amazon Prime now, like <laughs> <laughs> the being able to play, I assume they're going to be kind of the only major college football game on on Thursday night. I guess they're competing yeah. with the NFL. Uh, they will That's why they me. can't be on Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> the Pac-12 lost the slot. <laughs> uh, it's funny. The it's Pac-12 funny. would start their game at 1.30 a.m. to be on Amazon Prime. <laughs> this is the third time in the last four seasons that Texas has played in the Alamo Bowl. Wow. So I don't think, and then you look at like the opt-outs as opposed to everybody but Roma Dunze saying, we're coming back. We're bringing the band back for UW. I think there's a significant enthusiasm gap in this one. And if I want to make my most optimistic UW assessment, the last time I think that one team was so much more excited to be there than the other for UW football in a bowl game was the Holiday Bowl where they beat Nebraska in a game that they had no business winning. I still there barely remember this game. A rematch of a, the game that they had lost and the burn your jersey game. Uh-huh. In and we came back and just kind of kind of thwacked Nebraska, right? I mean, Nebraska scored like three points in that game, I want to say. It was, and it Nebraska, was pretty... they just they couldn't have cared less about being there. Oh no. Not at all. That's why we should really end bowl games. But okay. Well, it is a much larger playoff than it was, and it was nineteen to seven was the final of that one. We'll deal. We'll deal with that eventually. <laughs> and you know who that was the first big win, the first big bowl win for. Marcus Steve Sarkeesian. Sarkeesian. Oh, that was Coach was Sark. Sark. Yeah, two two he coached in what was that the two thousand? It was thirteen. That was, was, the, that was the, the Vegas Sark Bowl, left. right? Oh. Uh, no, it's the San Francisco Bowl. Whatever the Didn't hell. Didn't he also coach in the Vegas Bowl though? I thought he was also the coach. No, After no, Chris, Chris Peterson. No, Chris Peterson coached that game. Okay. I was there. I interviewed Chris Peterson. Asked him a question. Oh, wow. And Jimmy Lake, who was about to take over as head coach. It was like a triumphant passing of the torch between Chris Peterson and Jimmy Lake. And then nothing at all happened to change that. <laughs> Let's talk about the Seahawks. I'm fired up for that game. Man, I... It's I got rehyped. It's, it's a hard week to get excited about sports. I will say this week, it's a hard week to think about anything aside from just like sitting around and watching Netflix or whatever, catching up on all the shows that you, you wanted can to watch. Sit around and year. watch the bowl games on ESPN. But th- is are there any other interesting bowl games on on that night? That was my question for you. I mean, ESPN has all but like two bowl games now. You're aware of this, right? Okay, so it's basically so they that, don't that's they don't it. overlap bowl games anymore. Generally speaking, they're they're the dance. They are the party. On oh, yeah. I thought the NFL game was actually pretty good. Uh, the Thursday night NFL game is Titans Cowboys. So I don't know that I would say that that's pretty good. It's it could be a Malik lot Willis. Have you seen the Malik Willis stats? I'm just saying it could be a lot worse. Fair. <laughs> What's but it could the, be a lot better. You said it was pronounced desultory. <laughs> <laughs> we never looked that up. Zach Wilson uh, isn't participating in this Thursday night football. You know what? The Cheez-It Bowl is the lead-in for UW-Texas. You know he's playing in the Cheez-It Bowl this year. Tell me Wake Forest. 
No, you gotta look like way more marquee programs are playing at two thirty in the afternoon really? Pacific time. Who's in the Cheez It Bowl? Oklahoma and Florida State. Wow. The undercard for Texas UW. Know. That's kind of a monster get for the Cheez It Bowl. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> this one's for all the Cheez Its. Uh, oh boy. No, no, they're not. They're not plurals. Did you not see this on Twitter today? <laughs> what? Plural, this one's for all the cheese it. Plural. They're cheese it crackers, I believe. <laughs> An individual one could be referred to as a cheese it, but like you know, it's for, for who like, determined this? The, the people the, at the cheese it corporation. Yeah, the fine people at Nabisco. Like how you know tissue paper, you have to refer it as Kleenex branded tissue paper so that they can maintain their trademark as opposed uh-huh. to a Kleenex. It's they're, they're cheese it crackers instead of cheese it. <laughs> so at the end of the game, when there's a field goal, the broadcaster <laughs> would have to say, "This one's for all the cheese it crackers." I don't know we got here, but I'm glad we did. I oh, can't boy. believe you knew that information. I, I literally came across Twitter today. It's the national in, in reference to the cheese it bowl, company. obviously, not so. the national biscuit companies. Oh boy! All right, should we talk about the Seahawks? Oh, God. Uh, do we have any can takeaways? We, can we talk about the Broncos first? Because that's a lot more fun to talk about. You're right. Because there was a game this past weekend that we were hyping up all year. We had been <laughs> circling this game on the schedule. We had looked forward to it. We were so invested in the results of this game. We knew that it was going to make or break our holiday. And that game was Rams-Broncos. And let me tell you, there is no way that whatever we could have imagined for that game could have lived up to the reality of the Rams beating the Broncos 51 to 14. I just with can you Sam, imagine with Baker Mayfield at quarterback. If you told us that Russell Wilson would be healthy and would be would lose that game 51 to 14 to the Baker Mayfield Rams and also that the Rams wouldn't be in playoff contention and still were starting Baker Mayfield right cuz we would have been like oh that makes sense they were like whatever 10 and 5 well, they, or something they had the equivalent of the Jimmy G injury or the yeah. the Trey Lance injury and they That's, made a trade for Baker Mayfield exactly we would have been like wow what did they give up for Baker Mayfield <laughs> If How many first-round picks if did you they get Brian Burns shit, in the deal to? Like, preseason. That's exactly what we would have imagined. If And we would have been like, damn, that Rams team must be good. <laughs> Aaron Donald must have just completely owned Russell Wilson. <laughs> and Cooper Cup must have had a huge game. Was just beating Patrick Sertan. I kind of didn't even really think about it from the perception of the or perspective of the Rams torturing Russell Wilson again. Oh, just I thought cannot help it. Like that just <laughs> the, even, it doesn't even matter who's there. He's going to be tortured by the Rams. Ben Baldwin retweeted someone that it was like in the the seventh percentile of all of Russell Wilson's games by EPA, and I was like, how many of that seven percent below it are against the Rams? Even dating back to that St. Louis game during the Super Bowl season. Oh, God. Oh, that was terrible. Was Darnold, Aaron Donald, was he there yet? No, no. It was just a coincidence. That was one of the worst games we've ever watched. Shots to Golden Tate, I guess. <laughs> Shots to Golden Tate. And the Seahawks defense. At least the defense was good. Uh, but then they really season, dumb it. Who started that game? Brian Greasy. Pretty sure. 
No, that couldn't have been it. He didn't play for the Rams, did he? I really thought it was Brian Greasy. I mean, that sounds like the right level of quarterback, but I don't think it's specifically who started that game. You look that up and you you come to me when it's oh, Brian Greasy. I am looking that up right now, good sir. And I am finding that it was Kellen Clemens. Ah, uh, went 15 of 31 for 158 yards in that one. He actually didn't play. That that was like a classic game against the Seahawks. That's like the game that uh, Brian Gracie, didn't he play for the Rams? I don't think so. I will always remember that game as being a Brian Gracie game. I guess he never played for them. Huh. Not. Denver, Miami, Tampa Bay, Chicago. I'll be damned. So we now sit currently with the third pick in the draft <clears throat> from Denver. I'm, the Broncos have no incentive to win these last two games, and they have a fairly difficult last two games against teams that do have incentives to win. I don't. Well, really... one thing we want to make sure I haven't checked out the tiebreakers, but we want to make sure the Chargers have something to play for in Week 18. They probably will <clears throat> because they're one game ahead of Miami be right now, sort of and they're one sure. game behind. I think it's Baltimore is the top wild card. So. Seems likely. It was kind of interesting that Baltimore clinched a playoff spot when I was like, they haven't won in forever. But <laughs> the AFC playoff picture got less good in a hurry. We'll talk about one of the reasons why in a moment here. Uh, yeah, I mean, at Kansas City in Week 17, who has everything to play for right now. But I mean, the Rams then... also didn't have anything to play for, and they beat that team. Like, the Broncos are not an unlucky third pick in the draft. They're where they should be at this point. And they dropped, I believe, to 29th in weighted DBOA. Exactly the third pick in the draft, right? No, that would be fourth. Fourth pick in the draft. But, uh, <clears throat> but then firing firing Nathaniel Hackett and his inaugural no, season as head coach. I mean, we knew it was only a matter of time. I thought they were going to hold out till the end of the year. But that performance just... I mean, first off, when you lose on Nickelodeon that badly, I it just it changes have to be made. I really don't know what to make of Russell Wilson long-term. If Russell Wilson is just done as a professional quarterback, I think that he has one more year as a starter. If he performs like this again, he's done as a starter forever. But like... I don't know, forever? You know Nick Foles or, just started a game, right? He's done as Nick a... Going, going into the regular season as your starting okay. quarterback starter. Uh, obviously, a lot of people have started games or whatever. But they even started Zach Wilson a game. <laughs> Um, but it doesn't really matter. I don't care what happens with Russell Wilson after this, because this was the season we needed them to play badly. And those picks are looking very tasty. Right I want now. everything good to happen for Russell Wilson starting on January 9th, 2023. I want the Russell Wilson revenge tour to be epic to, for him to not write back to everyone who's writing him off right now. Because that's everyone in the world. But, yeah, I mean, it was hard not to... As far as I've heard, he wouldn't write them back anyway. He'd have to go through his agent. (laughs) Uh, Mark Rogers will be writing them back, telling them that they're wrong. Oh, dear. But Uh, for the next two weeks, it's all about that draft pick. Because, I mean, one of the things we talked about going into the season is like, well, should we hope for the Seahawks to make the playoffs? Or should we just be concerned about getting the highest draft pick possible? And look, it, it's looking a lot less likely that they're going to have the dream scenario of both making the playoffs and both, having both, a top five pick. Both missing the playoffs. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's looking unlikely. But 
they're still going to have the top five pick of that part part of that equation without having to suffer through a miserable season like the Denver Broncos are currently suffering through. Oh, I mean, they are in like they are in the what whatever they call it seventh level of hell or whatever, right? We've been through this. We did this recently. He, but, the the Denver is not. Is Denver is not going to. Well, okay, we we'll, we'll mention that in a second. But Denver is not going to get the. Uh, one year ago, we were in this position because the Seahawks had just lost to Chicago, but then we got the amazing offensive performance against Detroit. We got the win in Week 18 over an Arizona team that, at that time, it actually seemed like an impressive thing to beat the Arizona Cardinals. <laughs> Even if the Broncos win the next two games, though, it's not going to change things all that much. Probably not. I mean, they also haven't had Russell Wilson like missing five games due to injury that explains why his performance was weak. But I I would not say we were in this position is what I'm telling you. We, it was we never this in, bad. We were never in this bad of a position, right? But like we were in a position where you're bad. We and also weren't like saying it would cost $104 million to to trade Jamal Adams after this season. I mean, it wouldn't be cheap to trade Jamal Adams. He's also a safety. Like, it's. I, it's I wouldn't say the Jamal Adams deal is that much better than the Russell Wilson deal. Like, I, I would. Yes, you would say it is that much better. Yes. There, I don't know if I agree with that. At at his very best, Russell Wilson is worth the value of that deal. At I'm his very just best, like, Jamal no Adams that, is a safety. There's no way the downside can be as high for the Jamal Adams contract. Like also the the way that Seahawks structure contracts, they probably could get out of the Jamal Adams contract if they actually wanted to without that much difficulty. But you do have to look at this this team for next year, where like I, who gives a shit about these last two weeks? Make the playoffs, don't make the playoffs, whatever. We are living on borrowed time here forever because next year they are going to have two first round picks, two a early early second round pick, which is more or less the equivalent of a first round pick another second round pick and get Jamal Adams back. You're talking about adding possibly five players among others, right? But even if the Seahawks waived Jamal Adams next year, it would only be a 3.2 million additional cap head. That's kind of wild actually beyond his contract. His contract is still big though. Yeah. I mean, they take a $21 million hit next year. Okay. It's, it's not the same, but I'm saying that Russell Wilson could be good next year. Let's hope so. I think Jamal Adams could be good next year. No, I agree. But he's also, at his very best, he's a safety. Yeah, but he's making half as much. I I, I stand by my comments. And <laughs> How much no, is he making relative to other safeties? He has league? no guaranteed salary beyond this season. That is wild. Yeah, that's how the Seahawks structure contracts. Are you new to this? I just, the Denver Broncos do them. not structure the contracts I, the same the, way. The other thing, well, they don't structure Russell Wilson's contract the same way. I don't think they structure any contracts the same way. The other thing that I wanted to say and that I was reflecting on earlier was I am guilty of this also. And if this one season has taught me anything, look, I've been annoyed with Pete Carroll at times. We even talked about this a little bit last offseason, where I feel like I started to get there a little bit, even before the season started, was... When you were all takes, Tristan. There are so many. I, I have not been down on Pete Carroll one time since like March or whatever. There are, well, I don't know if I'd say that. <laughs> I did make fun of him for saying the team was going to go undefeated this year, which also may I present to you the 2022 Seattle Seahawks. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
there are so many worse options out there at head coach, right? The Broncos went out and hired Nathaniel Hackett. Russell Wilson, what he saw when he assessed all the teams around the league was the Denver Broncos were the perfect landing spot for Russell Wilson. Aside from Russell Wilson being not not playing well or whatever, if Russell Wilson was having a good season, he would still be straddled with a coach like Nathaniel Hackett, which, look, quarterback who's not meeting his value or not, if you're getting fired in your first if before the first season as a head coach is over, you're just a bad head coach. There's literally no other way to look at it. It's not like, oh, Bill Belichick was also fired midway through his first year as a head coach. That's it. Nathaniel Hackett is done as a head coach in the NFL. He'd have to go to the Brian Dable school to learn a lot of stuff at this point that I think is going to be very difficult for him to learn. There are a lot of coaches who, from the outside, may seem as though that they are going to be good coaches at the NFL level, and they're not. They're not ready for the level of responsibility that comes with it for handling a locker room, for handling the in-game decisions, for handling the offense, the defense, every bit that you have to handle, the roster, the interpersonal relationships that you have to handle as a coach. And the thing that we know about Pete Carroll is he is so good at every single aspect of being a head coach, aside from maybe having an outdated defense and also being pretty bad on fourth downs and challenges, some, challenges. Are you going to bring I, up timeouts? I am personally, look, I am personally down for the Pete Carroll emotional challenges, but because <laughs> I don't have emotions, I'm not down for them. Sometimes you want your coach to be like us. Anyway, I'm just saying there are a lot of coaches who could be coaching the Seattle Seahawks who are way worse than Pete Carroll. And I think when we look at this, we look at the alternatives, which are like, wow, the CX could have the best coach in the league. And that's true. Any team could have the best coach in the league. But there's maybe five coaches who are good. And there's a lot of other coaches out there who are very, very bad, who do all the same things wrong that Pete Carroll does, who are not good at the things that Pete Carroll is good at. And I, I personally am so thankful that we have had Pete Carroll during, and again, I'm admitting I was wrong during this time period, during this transition, everything Pete Carroll has maintained the entire time. He's always been the same. The draft picks sometimes are frustrating. I get it. Running but back in the second round. I get it. There are a lot of other teams who've done that though. And Pete Carroll has been one of, if not the best coach in the league over the last decade. So I think we do have to, consider that for a second and be at least slightly thankful for the time period that we've had with Pete Carroll, even more so than Russell Wilson. I mean, over the past decade, more so than Russell Wilson. No, no, I'm not going to say that over the past decade includes a period of time where Russell or Pete Carroll's defenses were consistently elite. And the part of the unit, the team that he's most associated with wasn't the weakest part of the unit year, the team year after year. I agree with you to a point. I don't think Nathaniel Hackett actually looked good on paper once you actually investigated his resume in a way that I, I admit that I didn't do until after week one. Because you then you realize, oh, this guy was the offensive coordinator for the fucking Jaguars. <laughs> and then the reason he got this job is because he went to the Packers and it's not his offensive scheme and he didn't call the plays. 
but he sure got along great with Aaron Rodgers. Mm-hmm. That's actually a check mark, a black mark in and of itself, yeah. getting along with yeah. Aaron Rodgers. So I think people just missed the boat on Nathaniel Hackett individually. Like one of the people we would have wanted the Seahawks to hire this offseason was Brian Dable. I think this season has gone pretty well for Brian Dable, which actually kind of leads into a point about this. Uh, I don't want to get ahead to talking about this game. Like, it's funny that one of the big reasons we didn't want to trade Russell Wilson was the Seahawks have such an easy schedule in 2022. And part of the reason we thought it was an easy schedule was because the two of the teams that they played out of conference that were determined by finishing last in the division were the Giants and the Jets. And the Giants are going to make the playoffs and the Jets are in the mix to make the playoffs. It turns out actually the reason they had an easy schedule in 2022 is because they got to play the NFC West. Oh, and the NFC South, which they did not win a game against. <sighs> so we'd be like again if we would have heard about baker we'd have been like the seahawks lost to the panthers and then <laughs> baker on christmas day we'd be like he beat us twice <laughs> baker we would have understood what the trade deadline was but then we would have heard that sam darnold was the the pa- panthers offense was the highest rated by epa since sam darnold became the starter and we would have are they really good oh yeah you didn't see that discussion today because they're running the damn ball. Yeah, Somebody is going teams. to expose that team so fucking badly. Well, I can't that, wait. That team is not going to be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers next week. So it's going to have to wait for week it, 18. It might be. It might be the Bucs. I don't. <clears throat> we'll see. All right. Any any takeaways from the Chiefs game? I thought Gino played a good game. You thought Gino played a good game? I thought I, he played an okay game. I do think Gino played a good game. And... I did have the thought. There's this famed conversation that happened between our good friend Tom Cable Thanos and Marshawn Lynch before a Thursday night football game against the Philadelphia Eagles. This is the the second half of the 2011 season leading into the Russell Wilson era. This was when Marshawn Lynch, Marshawn Lynch was a bad running back for the previous part of his career. Buffalo Bills tenure, early Seahawks tenure. He was a bad running back. In Had the not NFL. been statistically effective. We all love Marshawn Lynch, but statistically speaking, Tom Cable said, rely on the blocks, run through the holes. Basically, cool the fuck off, more or less. Take take what is there, run through the holes. The, the holes are there. Rely on the blocks. <clears throat> Seems like it should be very simple. Wasn't necessarily that simple. And then Marshawn Lynch from that point forward until the end of his Seahawks tenure, more or less, first time, was maybe before he started getting injured yes. often. Also, was, as soon as he started having a read option threat at quarterback, but that's neither here nor there. They didn't have the read option threat in the second half of that season. He was good before Russ was doing the read option in the early part of the following year, right? So up through before the Philadelphia game, he had actually one run for 111 yards the previous week against Washington. He averaged 3.9 yards per carry over the first 10 games of 2011. In the final six games of 2011, he averaged six point, uh, no, I'm sorry, 4.7 yards per carry. Okay, it's not actually that big of a difference. When you said six, I was like, wow. <laughs> that, was, that was yards per reception. <laughs> I got a little confused. It w- but it was better. Yes. Pete Carroll had me a conversation with Ken Walker being like, Stop trying to hit these holes so hard. We can all see it. Literally, Pete Carroll had the conversation with Ken Walker. Sometimes football is not as complicated as people think. 
And it's just like, stop running into your goddamn offensive linemen and run through the fucking holes. That's what football is. If you're a running back, you have one job. It is that these offensive linemen create holes and you need to run through them. Rashad Penny could do it. Ken Walker had a hard time doing it. But the offensive linemen did not create a lot of holes. Yes, some of the times they did create holes. He ran into them in the first half. They also haven't created a lot of holes in the last four weeks. And I think people are getting a little too out of hand off of one half of successful run blocking. It was very nice run blocking, though. It was great run blocking. Am I confident that's going to carry over this week against the Jets defense? Now, that is a little bit that's a little bit bigger of an issue. Uh, If it can happen, even at the smallest. What I'm saying is that if you can turn Ken Walker zero yard runs into Ken Walker three yard runs or Ken Walker, even a four yard run occasionally like the zero yard runs are killers. That is destroying the Seahawks offense. The amount of negative four yard runs. Those two. (laughs) <laughs> but the the Ken Walker that we have seen in the past, that is an unsustainable way of being. He is out of the league if he's running like that. It has to change. And I think there is a chance that Ken Walker will be slightly better against this Jets team over expected based upon that conversation that happened at halftime this week. Because it was very clear after the half that Ken Walker looked different. You can't tell me it wasn't. Yes. I mean, and unless you believe some you unless you believe some sort of idea that the defense wore down or whatever. No, like, I don't think th- that. There was mean, a especially change. at the start of the third quarter. The blocking was better as well. But they also they didn't necessarily have a good offense running with Ken Walker doing that because the reality is if you're going to do that, you still have to run the same offense. You just mix in good run plays instead of bad run plays. You don't only run I mean, I don't know the stats, the complete breakdown of the stats after halftime. I think the offense was pretty good. They had multiple they had dri- drives. They passed end. a lot more on like the final drive where they scored a touchdown. Sure, but they had multiple drives end in Kansas City territory in the second half, right? Like they were kind of unlucky in the second half offensively. They kind of got crushed by a couple of like zero yard runs later on though. Or maybe there was like a false start or something that pushed them back to first and 15 on the series that Gino threw the pick on. now at the same time the chiefs are not a good defense and the jets are a good defense so you have to sort of take those two things but also i think the cold i think the bad chiefs defense plus the cold short on two fourth downs in kansas city territory in the second half and then had the interception at the 22 which was on second and 12 it was a minus two yard run but it wasn't like gino needed to force something there it was just i p carroll didn't describe it as a miscommunication which is bizarre to me because i mean if you watch that play like gino threw the ball one place and the marquis gordon ran the other place so unless gino was it was the wildest misthrow of all time it seems like there was probably a miscommunication he said marquis could have got held he didn't look like that way on the replay i i didn't appear to have anything to do with what where that ball went and where he went like, I mean, it wasn't that was, like, oh, it's the only way really really like a pass. foot over his hand, outstretched hands and the defender caught it. It was like eight yards away from him. I got to say the play I find I was driving. You told me about the play where Gino could have run for the first down. Obviously, you should have. I get it. Right. That was the other thing where it's like Pete Carroll talked to Gino at the, at the end of the first half at halftime. It's like just if you see like 20 yards open, just run for the fucking first down. I don't know if it was 20 yards, but it was whatever. Seven and it was if you see it enough yards open to run for the first down, just do it, which is the same shit that everybody on the internet was saying. I gotta say, 
So you're saying that you can you can coach the Seahawks? No, but I, I I'm saying that I kind of I kind of like the play that Gino made there. I think people are overrating how bad that decision was. Gino hit Marquise Goodwin in the hands. Of course, like, people are overrating how bad the decision is. People are hindsight biased about everything. If Gino hits that, you're like, damn, he probably should have run it. But whoa, <laughs> I, I it was it was interesting because there was the play that we looked at for Russell Wilson, which is maybe more or less like the end of his Seahawks career for all intents and purposes, which was the play I think at Buffalo. Was it where he could have run for a first down and then he forced some throw to the end zone that got picked off? Right? Do you remember this play? I I, I remember interceptions at Buffalo. I don't remember the decision decision not to run. I'm pretty sure that this was against Buffalo, where he had probably an easy first down on the ground, which is a different thing. Geno Smith and Russell Wilson as runners are different players, but he forced a throw easily picked off. And this to me, the Geno decision was not anything like that. Geno had an open receiver and he hit him in the hands, and it would have been a bigger play. That's the thing. Big plays matter. Like getting the first down is good. And it would have been, it would have been down. The right it's more important to just it, get the first down. It and live to would play have been the right decision, but I'm saying it's like, it's like a and B it's not like a and F, but it, Whereas, I mean, to me, it's more like, okay, yeah, you're standing there, sitting there in your living room, just on your couch or sitting there, you know, on your couch. Like, yeah, it's easy to tell then that it was, you were going to pick up seven yards when you're fucking, there's a bunch of 300 pound guys trying to tackle you. It's a lot harder to tell that. And it's like 10 I mean, that's, outside. No, that's why they Cold pay shit. That's why they pay the players so much money because it is difficult to make those decisions. But like, let's just chill a little bit. I mean, I don't know. I think that's a little overly simplified, but yes. You could say that about any wrong. It's like, yeah, you say that now. Nathaniel Hackett. Oh, I would have gone for that fourth down. But, but Nathaniel I'm Hackett isn't like running <laughs> at full speed and trying to determine the trajectories. Like from a physics standpoint, it's actually an extremely complicated problem to solve. Nathaniel Hackett deciding whether to go for fourth down or not is not a complicated problem. It's a There's a fucking bot on the internet that tells you whether you should go for it or not. There's not a <laughs> bot on the internet that tells you whether you should run or pass. In any given situation, as a quarterback, I there, may, love, there might be, but I always think of this. It's a and I would love the problem. idea of just being a coach and just being like, I like. I'm so sad about who Brandon Staley is now. It's just like oh. watching that Chargers game, needing Justin Herbert to get fantasy points, and I'm like, how, obviously he's he's. It's been a more impressive season for Brandon Staley, the defensive coordinator, because their defense is actually very good. But I would love for there to be a coach that was just like. Fuck everybody. I'm following precisely what this bot on the internet says. Oh, I, I don't know if you've heard. The Cleveland Browns are doing that. Are they now? <laughs> no, they're not. But they're they're doing that now, according to are the they, Cleveland media. They're following the bot? It's just run pass options, you know, decisions, apparently. RPOs? They need it. They need no, like a when, how, how frequently to run, basically. Which is not true, but that's that's what the media says. All right, let's talk about the Seahawks news. They placed Will Disley on IR oh. due to a knee contusion suffered on Saturday because he has to miss a minimum of four games. He could not return this season unless the Seahawks reached the NFC Championship game. They took our boy from us. Disley was replaced on the 53-man roster by cornerback Xavier Crawford, meaning the Seahawks will likely promote tight end Tyler Mabry from practice squad this week to have three active tight ends. I mean, Disley, his yards per target, his catch rate, all incredible this season. Hopefully, you know, that carries over to a degree just with the Shane Waldron offense, but uh, he'll, he will certainly be missed. 
So the Seahawks this week host the New York Jets, who started seven and four under second year head coach Robert Sala and have since lost four in a row to fall to seven and eight. The last of those two games have come without starting quarterback Mike White due to multiple rib fractures. 2021 number two pick Zach Wilson returned to the starting lineup at quarterback and struggled badly getting pulled last <laughs> Thursday in favor of journeyman Chris Streveler in the second half as they lost to Jacksonville, having scored just three points. White was cleared to return Monday. We'll start with Sala saying veteran Joe Flacco will back him up, making Wilson inactive. The Jets have actually had their best record with Wilson starting going five and four in those games as compared to one and two in Flacco's starts as well as White starts. But that's largely despite Wilson and not because of him. As a friend of the pod, third pound brother Danny Kelly has been retweeting, the Jets have averaged 286 passing yards in Flacco starts, 302 in White starts, and 178 in Wilson starts. The EPA plus CPOE composite says Flacco has actually not been very good. He's 43rd among the 47 quarterbacks with at least 100 plays this season. Wilson is 44th. White is a solid average 24th. And he's even better in terms of adjusted EPA per play ranking 16th. Was also pretty good in three starts last year when he completed 67% of his passes for 7.2 yards per attempt. But that came with eight interceptions in his 132 attempts, and he's cut that rate in a quarter this year with just two picks in 129 attempts. You mentioned the draft pick the Seahawks sent to the Jets in the Jamal Adams trade to complete that last year. It was used on Garrett Wilson, who's the oh. favorite for Offensive Rookie of the Year, ahead of Ken Walker the third. He's four yards away from 1,000 this season, and it's averaged more than 110 yards per game during White's three starts, also catching two of his four touchdowns in those games. Former Titans wide receiver Corey Davis has been their number two option on a per-game basis, offers a big play threat, having averaged 17 yards per reception, with tight end Tyler Conklin the more reliable lower yards per target option. In the backfield, second-round pick Brees Hall was extremely effective before an ACL tear ended his season. Undrafted rookie Bam Knight burst on the scene with 230 yards in his first three games, but has been held to just 21 carries on 19 carries in his last two. The Jets offensive line, heavy Seahawks feel. Dwayne Brown starting at left tackle, having signed with the Jets after Makai Becton went on IR due to a patella fracture, with George Fan at right tackle, and Cedric Ogbwehi recently designated to return from IR as a backup tackle. Defense is the reason the Jets are still in the playoff hunt despite Zach Wilson's struggles. They're number six in DVOA after finishing dead last in Sala's first season as head coach. The past defense has made that exact same jump from 32nd to 6th after they drafted Sauce Gardner with the number four pick and signed DJ Reed away from the Seahawks to start opposite him. Gardner hasn't been the playmaker that Tariq Woolen has for the Seahawks with just two picks, but was also chosen a, chosen a pro bowler and is the heavy defensive rookie of the year favorite with Woolen currently third at Caesars Sportsbook by William Hill with Aiden Hutchinson in between them. The Jets also had defensive tackle Quinnen Williams and inside linebacker C.J. Mosley chosen for the Pro Bowl. Williams, the number three overall pick in 2019, living up to that status, making his Pro Bowl debut after notching 12 sacks to nearly match his previous total of 15 and a half in three years. Mosley ranks seventh in the league in tackles, has missed just five all season per sport radar. Like the Chiefs, Jets don't get huge pressure off the edge. Carl Lawson, the only other Jets player besides Quinnen Williams with more than four sacks. And then the stakes for Sunday. Seahawks would be eliminated if they lose and the Commanders beat Cleveland. 
Meanwhile, Sunday's game could be a must win for the Jets if the Dolphins win earlier in the day in New England. A combo of a Dolphins win and Jets loss would eliminate them from playoff consideration. This is the season right here. Yeah. I mean, the broadcast crew kept trying to talk about how last Saturday's game was a must win. And like, obviously, it would have been important. The Seahawks would have been in a way more favorable position if they had won, especially after Green Bay subsequently won on Christmas Day. But this is an actual must win. I was feeling a lot better about it when I thought it might be Zach Wilson. Uh, <laughs> it was Vegas. The Seahawks were one and a half point favorites when this opened. And and uh, before that announcement about uh, Mike White returning, now they are two and a half, or they were two and a half point favorites. Now they are one and a half point underdogs. That really feels about right. I mean, we saw that news about Mike White being clear and it was just like, fuck. Uh, Jets are a better team. The Jets are a better team. The Seahawks have not fared very well against good defenses this year. Uh, this is one of those situations where they've really struggled against the Niners twice. I mean, the Chiefs last week, the Panthers. Like, wait, the Chiefs were in the good defenses category uh, when it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the one thing I wonder about. Like, is what was the Seahawks defense played, especially against the run? Like. How much of that was just that it was cold and offenses weren't playing well generally? Yeah, nobody gets credit either way. Uh, it's all a wash. Oh, so the Jets be... are two and a half point favorite. No, yeah, minus one and a half. Yeah, yeah. This should be fairly neutral as far as weather is concerned, but it's just like a defense like the Jets, I, I really just don't see how the Seahawks score against them. What the Jags did last week, the Jags are a better team than the Seahawks are. What the Jags did against the Jets last week, I thought also was pretty impressive. In, in terrible weather during the second quarter in particular. But getting Trevor Lawrence moving, counteracting some of that pressure, which the Seahawks can do with Geno Smith. And I am sure that the Seahawks have watched that game plan and they understand it. And I am sure what the Seahawks will do is pound the damn ball, right? Like we know after that second half, they are going to go into this game and they're going to say to themselves, that is what the offense is going to be. Like, they're not going to go into this game saying to themselves, it's going to be a play-action motion offense. It is going to be a heavy Ken Walker offense. And the hope is that things are going well enough defensively and they get just enough points that despite that offense, they're able to eke out a win because the Jets aren't able to do anything. I mean, Mike White is has played well, average, or whatever, but, like, it's not like... It, it's not I, Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, it's not Patrick Mahomes. Honestly, it's not even... Brock Purdy. Are you going to say? I say. I. I mean, it's not the playmakers in the scheme that Brock Purdy has. It's not the Niners. But Mike White is. I'm sorry. Damn good. Is there that play that Brock Purdy made where they had Kittle open? Like some of those. I. Matt Lafleur is their offensive coordinator, right? For the Jets. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is. It is actually literally the 49ers' offense. There's no way that they're getting players open like that, though. Like, that was next-level coaching that was happening. And execution. Brock Purdy's just good. I'm sorry. We'll see. I, I'm right. very encouraged by Brock Purdy's start. I'm he's gonna less win the convinced fucking Super Bowl. You, you are that he's their best quarterback. Uh, but so. I, they can't run the ball like the Panthers ran the ball. I don't know what happened in the Raiders game. I, I just don't. I don't think the Jets are going to score that many points in this game. And I really think it's going to be one of those ugly January Seattle games where it's going to be like 17 to 10 or something like that. 
And it's going to come down to a couple of plays. Maybe Ken Walker breaks one. Maybe Gino gets free or whatever. Maybe Treequillen gets a pick. I feel like that's what it's going to come down to. I have no... Can I give another 50-50 on the game for this week? I'm going to give another 45%. I feel the same way about both of these. That's kind of how I feel about this one. (laughs) I, I just... I have no fucking clue. Like I go into it and just like, we know that that Jets defense is, defense is good. They're not as good as the Niners are. They don't have the, a pass rusher like Nick Bosa to destroy Geno's world. We probably will be able to run the ball a little bit better than they did against the Niners. And beyond that, it's going to come down to just a couple of things. And one way or the other bounces the ball. I just don't know. That's a good way to go out. I mean, we'll see if we have an emergency pod after the Alamo Bowl. Otherwise, this is our last scheduled pod of 2022. And I want to wish the listener a happy new year and uh, look forward to chatting with you again in 2023. (laughs) You had no other thoughts on the game? (laughs) No, I mean, you covered it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Have a happy new year, everybody. And we will see you in 2023. Thanks for listening. Thanks. It's the Michael Cage episode of the podcast. There we go. That's exciting. I was listening to him earlier on the uh, Thunder broadcast. Ooh, there we don't go. Brought it it down with that one. (laughs) (laughs) On the what? (laughs) What is his link to the Oklahoma? Is he from Oklahoma? No, I I don't know that they chose him because he played for the Sonics. Sonic legend, Michael Cage. They're like, I was uh, scrolling through. I was trying to think, trying to find a clear link to every draft pick that the Thunder have because I was uh, feeling ornery yesterday. Like You're trying to take credit for every Oklahoma City draft pick? No, 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 no. no. I was trying to find the picks that they have coming up because I was like, Uh, they've they've kind of fucked up this year's pick. Low key, right? Like they're not. No. I mean, they, they could be in the the Scoot Wemmemiemos. Oh, you're saying the 2023? I thought you were referring to the Chet Holmgren pick, which no, no, no. <laughs> I know you also think they, they yeah. screwed up. <laughs> they Ken Walker that pick. <laughs> F. <laughs> anyway, oh, uh, <laughs> this is not a consensus opinion. Uh, <laughs> Neither of those two is a consensus opinion. Uh, okay, wait, hold on. I want to finish this thought on the Thunder. Yes. So they've they've kind of the one year that are the biggest prizes in the draft are are coming, right? You have to agree this is probably the best draft since 2003. Uh I I don't know. 2018 was pretty damn good. Turned out the the Thunder did get one of the best players in that draft. SGA? Yeah. Yeah. That was the Zion Jaw draft. No, that was the Luca Trey draft. Okay. I mean, there've been good drafts, but like going into it, the perception of the players, this is the most hyped about players we've been since 2003. It's probably true. And women. Yama is clearly like a once in a lifetime prospect. John Hollinger made the case. He was broadcasting on the NBA app, the uh, Metropolitan's 92 game last Friday. He made the case that, that Wemanyama was actually considered more of a sure thing at this point than LeBron, and that he was the most sure thing since, like, possibly Ralph Sampson, but maybe if you go back to, before that to Kareem. I don't know. Like, Akeem would have been probably way up there, too. But I, 
Patrick I'm Ewing probably wasn't Patrick Ewing yeah, really, really yeah that's a, that's a good one I'm probably not quite as high on Wemanyama as the rest of the world I, I like I obviously think he's an amazing prospect and can do incredible things I don't know I think we're getting a little too hyped on him as a prospect okay well anyway all, all I was saying is that so I was looking at the Thunder I was like okay they've kind of they kind of fucked up the pick for 2023 right they're not going to have like the highest chances of getting the one or two pick or anything no. obviously they can win the lottery or whatever and i was looking at their future picks and it was kind of like if you look at them on paper and you don't look at the restrictions it's like oh wow but then you look at all of the restrictions and it's like it's kind of a, just a lot of chunk i don't know that houston 2024 first round pick top four protected is looking looking pretty tasty at the moment well, we'll see it's still top four protected though just this idea and that houston they're gonna will get try the, to win a little more that they would get the kind of haul that say like Boston got from the KG Paul Pierce trade. And I don't think that they're ever going to end up with any picks that are anywhere near as high as some of those picks that they got. I mean, the highest pick that they've gotten so far, I think would be the the 12 pick that or the 11 or 12 last year. So there's a lot of time to go. Obviously there's tons more picks coming, but and, just... and the thing is, it's just like Boston got exceptionally lucky that they nailed both of those draft picks with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. They could have easily in those two spots taken uh, Dragon Bender and Markel Fultz. I mean, and then what you would be saying about that the picks, all. though, it's just the picks. That's it. Like, but I'm saying the that having, having that a high. lot of number 10 picks is ultimately better for you than having the number three pick twice. I don't know if I agree with that. I I mean I've done a lot of, I've done more research on this than almost anyone. <laughs> <laughs> There's literally no way you could argue this with me. Literally written draft value charts. So I don't know what to tell you. Let me consult the draft value charts that I've written. <laughs> I see what you're saying. I get it, but it's more like how valuable are a bunch of 18 picks or whatever. I mean, I the other aspect of it is that they can kind of use those as currency and trades in they don't need to make all of those picks and they've already got like, yes, I don't know if they've got the inner circle superstar yet, but Shay is like performed at a top 10 level this year, arguably. And then they got the number two pick in last year's draft. He's already getting paid. Is he on a max deal? He's on the rookie max. Yes. When does he, when does he have super max come up? Uh, 2027. Okay. All right. So they have some time. They, they do, yes. So Anyway, I was just feeling re-bitter again for some reason yesterday. <laughs> good, good. Well, <laughs> we're going to talk more about basketball actually in a second here. A, a little bit. Well, let's get to, to this week's beer from our friends at Mailbreaker Brewing Company Wait, in Moxie, start, Washington. start the podcast over and put that at the end of the podcast? <clears throat> I don't think we need to start the podcast with a debate about the Thunder's draft picks. <clears throat> we probably don't. 